Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This has been an ongoing problem for the Canadian government for years. And just to give you some historical perspective on this, in August of 1980, 1980, that's a long time ago, uh, then Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, wrote a letter to uh, one Pamela McDougall uh, charging her with the mission of trying to figure out what is wrong with Canada's struggling foreign service. Uh, so she did a report, and it came out about a year later, and uh, they talked about some of the shortcomings here. Uh, that talked about a lack of identity, a lack of confidence, uh, some infighting, adversarial atmosphere, uh, and not much going on. And it was in total disarray. Well, that was 1981. And uh, here we are in 2023, and it seems as if an awful lot of those problems still exist, maybe even more so than they might have then. And that's bad news for us, because as we've talked about, uh, given the global situation these days with a war in Ukraine, uh, Chinese interference uh, and Russian interference, etc., cetera, uh, the Foreign Service is maybe more important than ever. I think there's an argument to be made for that. And we don't seem to be up to the task right now. So what is wrong and what can be done about this? Our next guest can offer some insight into that. He is uh, Oral Brown, who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Let me ask you, if, I just mentioned this before you joined us. It, it seems historically, and every time there was a, a federal election over the last 30, 40 years, I guess, we as Canadians don't really pay much attention to, to international affairs. Elections here seem to be won and lost on, on domestic issues, uh, you know, the, the cost of living and things like that. Uh, have we woken up to the fact that, that we need to be paying attention to what's happening globally now uh, because of what's going on? And Canada's uh, not necessarily our involvement in this, but I think the pressure for Canada to get more involved in some of these global affairs it is not unusual in, in a democracy in a democracy that the focus would be on domestic issues mm -hmm. that's what the people do everywhere in democracies around the world but canada is in a particularly um interesting let's say position because we have become much larger than many people realize the international system has become far more volatile than many people care to think about and consequently, the involvement that we need to have, not merely the one that we want to have, has has changed. Uh, there are multiple crises around the world where we are involved. We are a member of uh, at least two extraordinarily important alliances, NATO and NORAD. We need to contribute to those uh, uh, alliances. We also happen to be a G7 country, so we are a major economy. Our population has increased dramatically. If you look at uh, 1980, for example, the Canadian population was only about 24 million. We are now closing in on 40 million. So our population has almost doubled. Our international footprint is larger and should be larger. And to be effective in international relations, you need the right policy and you need to be able to execute it properly. Maybe the best example of, of our shortcoming, I guess, uh, may well have been a few years ago when uh, the two Michaels were imprisoned in China, uh, which was a, a, a clarion call, I guess, for diplomacy and, and for that sort of interaction. And uh, and according to, to most of the reports I've seen on this, they said we just didn't have the capacity to do this uh, because we don't flex our diplomatic muscles very often. It was a combination. We had a policy towards China that was far too lenient that was far too deferential in the past several years. Uh, it was where we wanted to get the inexpensive products from China. We wanted to keep uh, the market in China that we have for 
uh, our goods. And consequently, we were much more reluctant than perhaps we are right now to recognize that it's in terms of our uh, federal government to recognize uh, the link between Chinese domestic repression and foreign aggression and foreign aggressive uh, behavior. So in that sense, we were not prepared uh, well enough in terms of policy. And then we had the problem of execution, that as far as our civil service in the uh, Foreign Affairs Office was concerned, we were not really up to the task. They were not well prepared. They were not well qualified sometimes. Uh, and the response uh, had been very ineffective, uh, at least from the perspective of getting the two micros back. Uh, back. And it was an illustration of uh, uh, the combination of ineffectiveness deriving both from policy and from, and from execution. One of the stats here that I, I was just amazed by, Professor, um, is the Foreign Service itself. Uh, and, and one of the problems they've identified here is it seems to be Ottawa-centric. Uh, in other words, an awful lot of the people that are employed in this particular uh, capacity are, are, are stationed in Ottawa. <laughs> uh, foreign Affairs is out there. It's not at our nation's capital right now. It, that seems somewhat uh, counterproductive. It, it is a little bit odd because especially the current government has talked about uh, Canada being back, being more active, being more involved globally, doing more everywhere around the world, uh, whether it is uh, in Asia or Europe or in Africa, which is an understandable and in many ways a commendable uh, ambition uh, because we certainly are a significant enough country that we ought to have a footprint in all of those, uh, all of those areas. But then if you are going to do that, you have to have that kind of alignment between ambition and capacity. You have to have the people on the ground, not just in Ottawa. And you're right that it is somewhat Ottawa-centric, uh, that uh, it is focused in certain, uh, uh, certain ways. And the previous government, let's say the Harper government, uh, was concerned not only about how far Canada was involved uh, externally, but also there was a concern that the bureaucracy within foreign service had an ideology that was not very favorable to conservatives. At least that was the perception. The Harper administration's people were often saying that um, there was almost uh, this notion of a, uh, of uh, the Harper government being temperate, the nickname given supposedly to the Harpers, uh, at least in the first term, uh, by for the foreign service. Uh, it was claimed was the temps, that uh, they were not going to last very long and they would get different policies afterwards. So there was a lot of tension between the elected officials and, and the bureaucracy. That's not a very healthy uh, development. But the other thing uh, uh, that, of course, has to happen is that the alignment of capacity and ambition, though not perfect, involves expenditures. Money is not the only element in all of this. But if you do not spend the money, then you are going to have a natural tendency to gravitate in the capital, but you need to have enough resources that you can also put people out into the field, and they have to be trained properly. They have to know the languages. They have to understand the culture. Uh, the diplomats are the people who are our eyes and ears in terms of ultimately formulating effective policy. 
a lot of these, I, I guess, are, as, as you say, shortcomings. I, and I'm led to believe that there are policies in place for these. Uh, they're just not necessarily adhered to. You, you talk, for instance, about uh, foreign language training. Uh, only a small percentage of people, I guess, in the Foreign Service actually meet those requirements. And that's right off the bat. I mean, how can you communicate with somebody if you can't communicate through language? That's part of the problem. Only 18% of them, as you just mentioned, are actually out there. The rest of them are all stationed in Ottawa. Uh, and that's where the concerns are. And, and we've seen, I guess, the, the net result of that, haven't we, Professor? I mean, we should be and we're concerned about about African nations and third world countries and the influence of Russia and China on those countries. In, in other words, if we're not there, uh, somebody else is going to fill that void. And that's what's happened here. And it's, it's caused quite a problem globally, hasn't it? It has. And uh, we have a policy in this country that we are a bilingual nation. Uh, and, and so... Uh, the bureaucracy is encouraged, obviously, to be bilingual, uh, and there's a lot to be said for that. But uh, when you go to places uh, like Afghanistan, you need the people who can speak uh, Pashto, who can uh, and 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 Dari, and, and uh, who understand the local culture. Uh, the same thing in in Latin America. So we may need the, to get people who are multilingual. Uh, and not just the language, but also they have training and understanding the customs and the cultures of these countries because that is the best possibility or offers the best possibility for understanding and interpreting what is happening in all these states. So therefore, we can tailor make those policies, foreign policies that we have uh, around the world to be most effective because no one has unlimited resources. But it is the case that we also do not invest enough resources, that we need to have more people uh, at, at, at global affairs. And that is that is costly. And naturally, we have a variety of priorities. But look at the aid that we're giving Ukraine, for instance. Uh, we, we are giving, and this is policy, we have a commitment of something like $8 billion. But the problem is that our, our own armed forces are really run down. And to be effective, you have to operate on both fronts. You have to be able to provide foreign aid, but also to have the civil service or the military that can be effective in delivering it, that can be effective if they need to be involved in logistics. Uh, uh, and all of that has to operate that simultaneously. So uh, there is no magic. Uh, there are certain kind of things that you have to do. You have to train people, you have to have the languages, you have to have the investment, you have to have the alignment of uh, policy and execution. And I think uh, all these commissions that we have are not going to have much of an impact unless we are also prepared to act. Well, exactly. Uh, and what about consistency? And uh, you mentioned uh, the, the Harper government. Uh, for, for the longest time, uh, their foreign affairs minister was, was John Baird. He was there for the four or five years in that portfolio. Uh, Joe Clark in the Mulroney government, uh, same thing. He held that you need a familiar face and you need some continuity, don't you? I mean, uh, I guess in the last 17 years, there have been 11 different people holding the foreign affairs post. Uh, so it seems like every year or two, you have to reintroduce yourself to, to these other foreign dignitaries and other diplomats and, and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the person now. There's, there should be some consistency there. And Mr. Baird suggested uh, that when governments, whether it's a liberal government, pro progressive, conservative, whatever it's going to be, uh, when you look at this portfolio, you should actually make an appointment for the long term, like through the term of the government, so they can establish those relationships with, with other diplomats. In any uh, department, uh, the civil service in that department has to have 
a good working relationship with the with the minister and uh, therefore if the minister is changed very frequently it's hard to develop that kind of relationship and this applies at least as much possibly more in the foreign uh, service because you have to think in the longer term domestic policy may work on shorter cycles but foreign policy works on a longer cycle and if you look at that longer cycle and the kind of uh, ambitions and commitments that we have whether it's uh, uh, in the alliance or we want to get a perm uh, not a permanent but a uh, uh, rotating a temporary seat on the security council which uh, was an ambition that was not always shared by the, uh, by all canadians you you have to have uh, that ability to project and it would help a good deal if you had uh, ministers in place who stay longer who become familiar with uh, the department of foreign affairs and who are familiar uh, and uh, develop that, that uh, long-term working relationship with that civil service in that particular department so there have been so many failings we can identify all of these uh, failings it is not uh, that difficult to do uh, you, you you know, may have a commission, but you really don't even need that commission. I think uh, any good analysis would tell you of, of, of these problems. But uh, the solutions involve a, the will on the part of the government. You have to go beyond rhetoric. And the rhetoric of the government has been a very exalted one, an extremely ambitious one. Uh, uh, it sounds good, but uh, when it comes to actual policy, we can see now that we shifted in relations uh, with China from uh, one that were uh, where we were extremely deferential to one where uh, now now we are uh, increasingly hostile. And uh, the Chinese uh, leader uh, dressed down our prime minister at, at one point. He felt comfortable in in in, in doing that. Uh, and so we need to think in, in the longer terms. We need to invest the resources that are necessary. Uh, and we're not going to get perfection, uh, but there's more we can do. We have overall the resources. We may have to shift uh, some of the resources, which is uncomfortable. Uh, but we need to have that, that resource commitment uh, as well. And we have to do it over the longer longer term. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time today. It's a, it's a big, big problem. The government really has to address, and I know they got a lot on their plate right now. Uh, but uh, but given the global situation and and the pressure, I think from our partners that you've already referenced here uh, to take a more active role here, uh, it's something that the government's going to have to address. Thank you as always for the time. I really appreciate our conversation. Thank you for having me on. Take care, Professor Earl Brown from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.